You're listening to Feral Attraction. Hosted by Metrico and Vero the Science Collie. On this week's show, we open with a discussion on a recent article in CNN about polyamory. Our main topic is part three on our discussion on shame. We go over how to live your life honestly and without concealing shameful secrets. We close out the show this week with a question on cheating and long-distance relationships. Hello again and welcome to Feral Attraction. Hi, Metrico. And I'm Vera the Science Collie. See, everybody, I promised you Vera would be back this week. <laughs> I am back. I'm, I might still be a little bit exhausted from all the travel I've been doing lately, but I am, in fact, back at least. Yeah, you were... Um, uh, FWA this past week, right? Yeah, I was actually off uh, visiting Pedal, which was fun. And then I went to FWA. And then from there, I had to go to a work trip in San Francisco for a couple of days. So I've been all over the place. He's just been a jet-setting collie. I have. <laughs> so um, we'll, we'll talk more about FWA after uh, in a little bit. But uh, let's let's get to our top of the show now. It's There's actually an article published yesterday in CNN. And it was uh, titled Rethinking Monogamy Today, and it was written by Ian Kerner, who is a uh, like relationship and sex therapist here in New York. And it's actually kind of strange um, to to read this because when when you think of like CNN, I don't I don't necessarily think of like you know something an, an institution perhaps that's super progressive. Maybe like they seem to be. If you look at their advertisers, they do seem to have a little bit of like a I don't want to say a hard on, but maybe like, yeah, a hard on works for, for like, <laughs> Hey, family is great. And we love family, like gay family works, lesbian family works, straight family works, but like two adults, that's good. And there's an article that's talking about monogamy, maybe not being the right answer or maybe the best option for a lot of couples. You know, hilariously, the obsession with focusing on couples in this article, I still think is maybe a bit misguided. Um, I noticed, for example, <laughs> that all of the stock photography they went with for this article is literally just pictures of couples. So I'm like, oh, that couple's got a baby, but that's not quite what we mean when we say non-monogamy, guys. I'm not really sure <laughs> what, you know, what you're going for there. You couldn't right. find a single picture of like two guys and a girl in bed together because that was too risque, even though you're <laughs> writing an article about non-monogamy. Okay. Yeah. <laughs> I did little, kind of, yeah. A little bit of that bias is still there, I guess. Yeah, I mean, I did pick up on that as well. Like, you didn't see, like, you know, it very much so was like, hey, it's a man and a woman and their baby and a man and a woman and their toddler and they're in separate pictures, but we're talking about mashing those pictures together. Um, yeah, it's it's maybe, maybe, and this might be something that you can capitalize on, Kali. Maybe there's just not enough good stock photography of polyamorous, like, you know, groups. Like, it's it's people, there there does seem to be more of a market for, like, hey, we need couples <laughs> photos, not throuples photos. Maybe they should have used a picture of, like, two guys in, like, in Tiger and, and uh, ma masks, like, wearing leather jackets. I think that would have been much much, much more representative. <laughs> <laughs> oh, no, but think of the backlash. <laughs> I'm referring, of course, to the bizarre staff photography choice that was Playboy made associated with the article that Deborah So wrote on us. So, yes, stock photography 
and non-traditional relationships seems to be an area of further exploration that perhaps feral attraction should branch out into one day. We'll have to, we'll have to, we'll have to kind of get into that silo at some point, Metrico, <laughs> to diversify. We'll, we'll have like an entire photo shoot at an upcoming convention. How about that? That sounds like a good time, actually. That really does. Be fun. That like, does sound like a good time. Fandom uh, stock photography that you can yeah. license out. Yeah, yeah, I like that. Okay. But there were still some really great quotes in this article, not to knock it completely. So I, I yeah. do make fun of it for being very couple-centric, but that being said, they actually address non-monogamy in a very open and I think fairly detailed and understanding way to the point where, frankly, it's far more friendly coverage of non-monogamy than I've ever seen before in such a mainstream publication as uh, CNN. So uh, they for, in fact, say verbatim that consensual non-monogamy can be a healthy option for some couples and executed thoughtfully can inject relationships with some much needed novelty and excitement. So, of course, my only objection to that sentence is it can be a healthy option for some people. I'm not sure why you need to be a couple first before you can enjoy uh, polyamory or non-monogamy. That's a little bit of a uh, misnomer uh, right there. So there's still some a bit of misunderstanding there in terms of did not be couple centric. We can have solo poly. We can have people who just are unicorns and just appear in other people's relationships. Uh, so not everybody has a primary partner, right? So they're not necessarily include being totally inclusive of those people, or maybe even the relationship anarchists, for example, who certainly don't, you know, even use labels potentially. But that being said, I think that's really cool to have a sentence like that appear in uh, CNN on, on their website. And they also make the point of saying that there are as many different types of non-monogamous relationships as there are people in them. And I think at least having that sentence be in there is good because it gets across that there's no one right way to do this and that everything is negotiated. That's what people decide and they mutually agree upon. So I think ultimately it's a very favorable and uh, good description of what uh, non-monogamy can offer couples. I wish perhaps they branched out further than couples and maybe even included a photo of someone besides a couple. But other than that, <laughs> um, really good article. I'm glad to see it. You know, it's it's. I'll I'll kind of give a a small pass, like like a temporary pass, um, a one day pass maybe to this article because you know when when I think about the author and him being a couples therapist, you know he's just framing it within the context of his expertise perhaps. And I can understand coming from it, you know, uh, you know, presenting it to people that are in existing relationships. Like, hey, you know, a lot of people, this might be for couples that have thought about inviting a third, maybe, you know, branching out, maybe going full poly, full blown, like no cure poly. And I can understand the need for doing that. I do agree, though, that it would be nice to kind of say, hey, and also people that are looking to be in a relationship, you don't need to find just one person. You know, if you're comfortable with finding two people, then maybe that works too for you. Yeah, I think that's honestly the point I was going to make, too, is when you're, you know, when you're a hammer, all you can see is nails. When you're a couples therapist, all you can see are couples, right? So right. I think there definitely is a bit of that going on here. But also, you know, I think this to be, to be fair is I think most people's first exposure to polyamory is in the context of opening up an existing relationship, right? A lot of people don't necessarily wake up one day and say, you know what, I'm a relationship anarchist. <laughs> that takes right. some trial and error to figure that stuff out, right? So right. you often do do the exploration from within a couple. So I think from that perspective, 
assuming this article's intended audience is people who aren't super familiar with polyamory but might be considering yeah. opening their relationship. With that audience in mind, I think it makes sense to be using that perspective. Yeah, and also without there being any kind of like super familiarity with the subject, you want to take a context that everybody is familiar with and that, you know, the one person, one person kind of relationship, the the standard monogamous pairing, and then kind of open that up so that way people have that context and people are able to relate more easily. You know, from my perspective, when I read this article, I love the fact that the author talks about there needs to be discussions about what this relationship means to us. There needs to be discussions about honesty and jealousy. You know, the, the, a lot of what we talk about on the podcast in terms of communication and, you know, being self-aware of your own emotions. So there's a lot of really good in this article. And as always, we'll provide a link to it within our show notes. So you should definitely check it out and, you know, maybe pass it along on Twitter. Because obviously with things like this, the more exposure that it gets, the more that CNN is able to kind of see like, hey, people are responding to this kind of reporting the more likely they are to continue to branch out into more progressive and more non-monogamous reporting, which is very helpful. You know, the more exposure that relationships of these sorts have, the more accepted that they are. Visibility is everything. We're going to move on to our main topic, though. And this is, we're finally there, everybody. <laughs> to everybody that was asking me, wow, the past two weeks have been nothing but gloom and doom. When are you, when, when do we finally see the light? Congratulations. The light is here. Well, kind of. We're going to talk about shame, but we're, we've moved past. To recap the last two weeks, week one of shame, we talked about when you conceal a secret, when you have a shameful secret that your life revolves around and your entire game plan is nobody can find this out. So you construct a facade and you discover that it's, it's exhausting to keep that facade up. And eventually maybe through no fault of your own, that secret becomes public. In week two, we talked about how to kind of move past that. You know, when people are outed, when people come out of the closet, when people have been concealing something for a long period of time, and that is now public information, there is a tendency to continue to have shame because you've grown up, you've lived your life up until that point with the truth that is you are intrinsically flawed. And so you continue to construct a facade, but this time it's no longer... I mean, for example, it might be, I am the greatest, straightest athlete, and now it might be, I am the gayest person that has ever gayed. And (laughs) again, you're still not kind of living your truth, perhaps. I mean, you might be the gayest gay that ever gayed, in which case, like, shout out, like, come give me a hug. The thing is, is that during this time, people tend to be a little bit miserable still because there's still this idea that they are broken you're looking for answers when you don't actually know what you're looking for and there's a tendency to kind of fall prey to addictions whether that's you know lots of anonymous risky sex whether that's drugs alcohol whatever it might be and so there's a lot of misery and because you don't know you know your truth you don't have integrity you end up sabotaging everything that you touch from 
actual relationships with, you know, a boyfriend or a girlfriend, with relationships with your family, work experiences, friendships, everything that you touch, you end up sabotaging. Today, we're going to kind of talk about what the solution to everything is. And it actually kind of circles back to the very beginning of this of feral attraction. We're going to talk about you this episode. We're going to talk about integrity. We're going to talk about pathing and directions. We're going to talk about ambiguity in relationships. It's going to be kind of, you know, if last week was kind of a super personal episode for me, because A, I was the only one doing it, <laughs> this is going to be, you know, B, this is going to be a a rather, you know, personal episode as well for, for you know, both Vera and myself, because, you know, I, I feel like in our lives, we finally, you know, after living kind of, you know, in episode two for a period of time, you know, he and I have moved on to to being past that. And that's a big reason, you know, why we started doing this podcast was because we wanted to kind of share those experiences as well as the relationship experiences. When he and I did the, you know, Collies, Follies, and Metrico's Mistakes episode where we spoke about past failures and relationships that were our fault. A lot of those failures came to be because we were still kind of living in, in a shameful existence. So we're going to go ahead and uh, start out this episode. So the thing, last week I spoke about foreclosure. And it's this idea that this act, like a particular action, hasn't been working for me yet. But if I work harder at it, it will start working for me. So it might be, well, having lots of sex hasn't made me happy. So if I continue to have more sex, maybe that will make me happy. That's what foreclosure is. The thing is, is that you never want to foreclose on ambiguity. You you need to combat ambiguity. If If the terms in your life are ambiguous and you don't know if they bring you comfort or they bring you shame... You need to find an answer to that. You can't just bury your head in the sand. You cannot foreclose on ambiguity. Yeah, I think, and honestly, that's, this is where I think one of the things we talk about on the show time and time again really is important. And that's self-reflection and self-knowledge, right? Because unless you've taken time to reflect and, and really think about what is it that truly makes me happy? Where does my joy come from? What is it that I need, that I truly need in order to be happy? And if you can't answer those questions, and not only answer them, but answer them honestly in a way that is true uniquely to you, not that's true to society or true to what your parents told you was supposed to be good for you or what your partner told, told you was supposed to be good for you or what your children told you or what anyone told you, your best friend, but what is authentically and truly what makes you happy and what makes your heart sing. You need to figure out what that thing is for yourself and then seek that. And other, if instead you continue to seek things that other people tell you are supposed to make you happy, but don't actually make you happy, that's that foreclosure on ambiguity that we're talking about, where when you're faced with that ambiguous sense of, this isn't really making me feel happy, I'm not sure why, instead of actually, you know, interrogating that and figuring it out and realizing that maybe something else might bring you more joy, 
Instead, you just choose to keep doing the same thing. And basically, you fall back into that old, that old saw saying that, you know, insanity is doing the same thing over and over and expecting different results. This is basically embracing insanity, right? It's kind of a, it's sort of a way of doing that. And it's really not a great way to live. <laughs> right. I mean, let's give an example. We've actually spoken about this on this show. Your parents might have told you that the path to happiness is a college degree, finding somebody to marry, having 2.5 kids, a house and a white picket fence. And that is what is to make you happy. And you don't see that path making you happy. You might be in college. You might be married in a monogamous relationship. You might have all of that. But you're not truly feeling fulfilled. In cases like that, you're kind of in an ambiguous kind of existence where this isn't making you happy. You're not feeling fulfilled, but you don't know why. And so you're not going to change it because this is what you see everybody else doing. This is what society tells you should make you happy. So maybe you're just doing it wrong. It could be something about your your queerness. Maybe you feel like you're not being gay enough, or maybe you're being too gay, or maybe you're maybe you're a trans individual and you don't feel that you're passable. You feel that everybody clocks you, or maybe you don't feel secure in your identity yet. Whatever it might be, foreclosing on ambiguity causes you to kind of lose any kind of ability to have self-reflection and internal clarity. If you know certain actions are not bringing you long-term happiness, you should probably stop doing them. And of course, that's not to say, like, revoke all responsibility that you have, it is all void. If you have responsibilities to other people, you should take steps to kind of pull yourself away from them or find ways to accommodate these individuals into your new path. So when I talk about, you know, things that you should stop kind of immediately, these are things like one night stands, maybe drinking yourself into a stupor every night, maybe just balls to the walls, drug time. These are things that people, especially when you're younger, that you do in order to kind of bring you that momentary fleeting high. Foreclosure, it's it's a form of escapism. At the end of the day, that's what it is. And escapism keeps you from the overall goal in, in this formative stage of your life, which, which is accepting who you are, your true self, your inner self. You know, foreclosure inhibits commitment to yourself and also to others. And so what happens during this time is that relationships are fleeting. There's no sense of permanence. Everything is fickle and frail and brittle. And there's no sense of permanence or progression. You might see and you might feel in your life that everybody around you is moving forward in their lives. They're getting careers. They're getting married. They're finding love. They're building, you know, they're building their future. And you might feel stuck in stasis. That's what foreclosing on ambiguity is. I mean, there's basically a talking head song about this phenomenon, right? Right. You know, where's my beautiful house? Where's my beautiful wife? Like the bit that whole, that whole idea of like, you wake up one morning, you don't really, you really feel like nothing around you is actually what you want. And you don't really kind of think, kind of can't 
remember how you got there and you kind of wonder why you've wasted so many years of your life doing things that don't make you happy. It right. basically midlife, that's kind of the idea of a midlife crisis comes about and people act like a midlife crisis is a normal thing that everyone is supposed to have. It's actually not normal. You shouldn't have one. It's only a normal thing to have if you have a crisis of shame like this, because then the midlife crisis is you basically confining the fact that you've not been living your authentic self for years, right? There's actually a joke about how, you know, LGBTQ individuals have their midlife crisis the second that they come out of the closet. Pretty you much. <laughs> it's it's a midlife crisis is is just the source. It's the cause of an unexamined life. It's the cause of an unexamined self. You know, when you foreclose on ambiguity, it's it. Basically, you're achieving artificial clarity on yourself, and that temporarily relieves internal stress and conflict. You know, it's like, okay, well, I figured myself out. I'm good. But you're viewing it through a false lens. It's not even like rose-colored glasses. These are blacked-out shades that you can't see shit through. And you're like, I see everything crystal clear. And it might get you through a day, a month, a year, ten years. But eventually the model that you have constructed for your life is going to stop working. When you live in a kind of sustained ambiguity, you are living a series of moments. And that structure is entirely reliant on these moments being perfect. And the second that one of those moments goes horribly wrong, the entire structure is destroyed. Kind of a house of cards, really. Yeah. You are back at square one. You don't have the proper foundation. Everything is unstable, and you're hedging all of your bets on there being no wind, like no disaster. But life is just a series of disasters that is interspersed with really awesome moments <laughs> that make up for the bad points. So the way that I would, yeah, that's interesting looking at. I think the way I would put it, though, is kind of thinking about it more as kind of just when you don't know what it is that you want, when you don't know which direction is the direction you're supposed to be going in, every step you take is a step in the wrong direction, right? So there's often a sense of just spinning your wheels and not getting anywhere, like what we were talking about before. Even if you're making progress along different paths, if you don't know if it's the path that's right for you, it's hard to feel good about that because you can't really take validation and success and joy from that if it's, you don't really know if it's truly that's the thing that's making you happy, if that's not where your joy is coming from. And similarly, it's a problem of just, you know, when you don't know, when there's no authenticity to what you're doing, Everything becomes about appearances, right? So you're trying to construct the appearance of happiness. You're trying to construct the appearance of a good life or a successful life or whatever it is that you, you know, the society is determined is, is good or what you're supposed to be shooting for, right? So you're, you're obsessed with creating these appearances. Now, whenever anything happens, kind of what Umetko was saying, that disturbs this appearance or that reveals something that, you know, a crack in the facade that shows something that's well, deviant or less than the expectation or less than normal, or less than society's ideal or whoever's ideal it is that you're currently working for, you're going to feel such a profound sense of failure and shame about that. Because again, it's that house of cards metaphor. It just really exposes all that raw shame right back to the surface, right? You, you, might, you might have thought that you'd dealt with it actually by this point in your progression, but you actually haven't. Because the shame's still right there. It's just now coming out when you've failed to convince everyone else 
of how successful you are, of how good you are, of how, you know, beautiful your wife is, of how big your house is, of, you know, any of those things, if those things don't go, go according to plan, that's where the shame can come roaring back to the service. And you won't, you won't realize it's shame. You won't experience it as shame. You're just going to experience it as, again, like a midlife crisis. And that's, you know, you, you kind of, if, 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 if at all possible, you would, it's better to confront these things over time to have those introspective conversations with yourself regularly rather than let things build to a crescendo where you feel like you're living a completely fake life when you you get into your 40s, right? So hopefully you can start having these conversations with yourself over time now and that's kind of what we're encouraging through feral attraction is have that conversation with yourself now to avoid that foreclosure and to really, you know, know yourself well enough to know what it is that will make you happy so that you can work towards that because otherwise anything you work towards is really just building that facade that can come crashing down at any moment. You know, as I've quoted before from Seneca the Younger, who was a Roman philosopher and kind of humorist, uh, satirist, if you don't know which port you're sailing to, then there are no favorable winds. You need to know what you're working for. And when you live in constant ambiguity, a life of ambiguous terms and sensations, that is one of the hindrances. This is something that you have to look out for in your life. And you have to make take steps, like Vero said, to eliminate. And you need to start having those kinds of very difficult conversations with yourself to determine whether or not the way that you're living right now in the present is the person that you want to become in the future. You know, there's there's another kind of hindrance that that will kind of keep you from accepting you as yourself. And it's uh, Alan Downs uh, refers to it as relationship trauma. And what happens, especially when you're living in a shameful existence, when you're building that facade, when you have relationships that are built on false terms, bad things tend to happen. And the thing is, is that you have to kind of accept who you are, that, that, that rather that who you are is valued, that the you that you are, which sounds kind of like a weird sentence, but your true inner self is valued and worthy of love and worthy of acceptance, despite what people might have said in the past. And just as a side note, there is no such thing as being too queer, not queer enough, too butch not butch enough, not too femme, too femme, too masculine, whatever it might be. There is no such thing as being too passable, too clockable. Who you are is valuable. The issue is, is that we allow relationship trauma that we've had with other people to kind of get in the way to affect our own sense of self. There's a lot of relationship stinking thinking, to, to borrow a phrase from the Venture Brothers, <laughs> that, that you might encounter based off of these past experiences with, with loved ones, with family, with friends. The, these ideas that you're unlovable, you'll never find someone interested in you, you're going to die alone, you're incapable of love. I actually, when I was writing out the notes for this show, I remembered a discussion that I had with my mother. Um, close to the time that that whole thing went south. (laughs) And she said that she envisioned me alone, like for my entire life that I would never get married. And I'm pretty sure at this point she realized that I was gay as the day is long. 
And that was kind of her way of saying, like, you're gay, but you're never going to act on it because you're a good Christian boy. So you're never going to get married. You're never going to do anything, whatever, whatever. And it was really only when they discovered that I had acted on it and I was outed and all that good stuff, like, that other people knew and they had to act on it. The thing is, is that there will always be people in your life that are going to tell you that you are not worthy of anything. You are not worthy of love. You're going to live alone. You're going to die alone. There's never going to be anything in your life that is going to make you feel loved, worthy of any kind of affection. Yeah, and one thing I just want to toss in here, too, is this is completely relevant. Uh, is we actually have a show that we did on Living for Yourself way back, uh, episode number 26, so quite a while ago, 40 episodes. But th- you know, yeah. this is something that is kind of core to Feral Attraction. You kind of notice that some of the shows we've done lately, like the show on empathy, uh, some of this discussion on shame, it really brings together everything else we've been talking about because it really is all of a piece, right? So at this point, what we're really talking about is don't give a fuck. This, this gets back to the idea of just you have to embrace this not giving a fuck about what other people think about you. And instead of living for approval and caring what others think of you, you have to decide to self-define, to, to, to realize what's important to you and to decide whether you are valuable. And hopefully you obviously decide that you are valuable because you want to be able to love yourself. But instead, you need to find out what's, what is it in you that you value and that you find that needs nurturing, that you want to see grow and that you want to develop. And then embrace that and show that to other people and allow them to love you for the same reasons that you love yourself. And that's right. really the key to all of this, right? Instead of letting other people say, oh, you're too queer, you shouldn't, you know, you're too femme, you're, you know, whatever the issue is, you don't have enough muscles, you're too fat, you're too skinny, you're too tall, you're too short, you have acne, you've got bad skin, you've got a small dick, whatever it is, you know what, maybe you've got all those things going on. That's great. But you know what, you're still a human being who's worthy of love and who can be in a loving relationship. It doesn't, none of those things are disqualifying for love, right? And you just need to realize that there's absolutely nothing that disqualifies you for love. Nothing. You, as a human being, are inherently worthy of love. And you just need to find what it is about yourself that you can embrace. And there is always something. There is always something. There's something about you that you can find in to learn to love and embrace. And that's the part, that's the true core, that's the, the true core of your authentic self. And that's what you need to really develop and nurture and bring out and show to the world. Because that's where your joy is going to come from. It's not going to come from dodging the disapproval of other people. No. That, that that really is kind of the whole core, you know, way, 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 way back. It's, it's, I, I, I remember talking about the idea that if you're able to conquer yourself, you're able to conquer all. And that's really what this all boils down to. You have to find and kind of silence these inner voices, this, this inner saboteur that is trying to wreak havoc on your self-worth, your, your self-image and kind of just say, well, fuck off, you know. I think I'm awesome because I'm this and I'm that and I have this. And sure, I might be short and fat or whatever, you know, tall and too thin. But you know what? Fuck off. I'm good. And sometimes it's it's there's a drag queen, uh, Katya, uh, who talks about this inner voice. And she actually gives it a name. And that might help. You know, we're, we're furries. We're good about anthropomorphizing. Maybe by giving that internal voice of shame and doubt a name, 
So you can tell that, you know, Brenda, fuck off. Maybe that helps. Maybe by making it into a person inside of yourself that you can just kind of ignore, that you can ghost. Maybe that helps. But find your own way to, if you can't silence the voice, to move past it. Because that's really what's going to help. Because what happens when you don't is that you cling to these ideas and you also cling to the the traumas that relationships can bring into your life. And when we talk about relationship trauma, we're really talking about things like betrayal. We're talking about uh, things, you know, issues like abandonment. And we'll kind of go into those a little bit more. But when you cling to relationship trauma and these inner voices, your overall quality of life becomes impacted. You know, trauma kind of is manifested in two ways. You have internalized trauma, and that goes into the idea that you will never be comfortable with who you are as a person. And that continues the effort for you to build a facade rather than being authentic. And when it comes to external trauma, it causes you to catastrophize everything. It's not about there being another problem with another person. It's about when. And that problem is going to be major. Even if it's they didn't properly close the cereal box and now it's a little bit stale. Maybe it's they left the toilet seat up. That's going to be enough for you to explode. When you cling to relationship trauma... You catastrophize every small thing. Oh my God, he's not home on time. He's he's five minutes later than he usually is. He's clearly having an affair. These sorts of external traumas where you expect everybody to intentionally hurt you causes you to just be hypervigilant. And you start seeing things that aren't there. You start making up. You you start preemptively gaslighting. And you're gaslighting yourself that your partner is being dishonest with you. That your partner is, is cheating. Selling you something you don't want to buy. Because, well, this happened to me before. And this will happen to me again. You have to be able to decatastrophize. You have to stop being hypervigilant. The issue that you're going to run into is not everybody is a bad person. Everybody kind of comes from a place where they have had some kind of relationship trauma. Maybe it's with their parents. Maybe it was with their friends. Maybe it's with you know, a former loved one, or maybe with somebody that they've managed to repair the relationship with. As we said, every relationship at some point requires repair. But there are two kinds of relationship traumas, again, betrayal and abandonment, that kind of stick out as being the most difficult to repair. So when we talk about betrayal, we're talking about when a partner cheats or undermines the relationship in a deliberate act. So this is not a mistake. This is They intended and completely consciously decided, well, fuck you, I'm going to fuck you over. It's a long series of small deceptions, omissions, and white lies. And what happens whenever you kind of are put in that position is that you can become kind of hopeless in not only your current relationship, but future relationships. This is what kind of leads to that hypervigilance because, well, this person did this, a lot of small lies. They didn't 
actually tell me the truth here. So I have to watch every word out of their mouth. I have to like Zapruder film their every action. Everything that they do has to be analyzed at least four times in four different ways. You become the, the Sherlock Holmes of bullshit relationship investigation. And the issue with that is, yeah, does that suck? Absolutely. I think that most people have been in a relationship where there has been some act of betrayal. And it does stick with you. But you have to remember that not everybody is out there to undermine you and to kind of fuck you over. If you're in a relationship with somebody, there is a sense of vulnerability that has to has to come. And if you're not able to be vulnerable with another person, you're kind of sinking the ship before it's already left port. See, and the way I think about betrayal and the reason why I think relationship trauma really sticks with people, and I feel like uh, the Velvet Rage touches on this, which doesn't even maybe unpack it quite as much as I would personally, I think the reason betrayal stings so much for those who are still dealing with a little bit of internalized shame and who haven't maybe quite come to terms with all of the shame that they, they have inside of them, who maybe don't feel totally confident in themselves, is when you're betrayed... You were then your internal locus of control is going to tell you that the betrayal is your fault, right? That the reason I was betrayed is because I have some shortcoming or failing. I didn't offer my partner enough. I wasn't satisfying enough. I didn't, you know, I some something. There's only something I did that set my partner on this dark path, right? And that's very tempting logic. And you, it, you feel like there, it just it's exposing the inner brokenness that you still are kind of hiding inside of you, right? That you feel like you're maybe a bit broken or damaged or not good enough or inferior to other people. And so you experience betrayal as a the logical consequence of you being inferior, right? And so that type of that type of feeling really sticks with you. And that's why this type of trauma can really stick with a person is when you attribute that betrayal as revealing a failing in yourself. The thing is, betrayal does not reveal a failing in you. Betrayal reveals a failing in your partner. And that's always the case people have one night stands and they get drunk at cons and screw around sure they do that because they're horny right and you can you can write that off as that person was horny they weren't thinking it wasn't deliberate right that's not betrayal that's just i got drunk at a party and oops and this happened you think that's more forgivable right betrayal is harder to forgive because it's so deliberate but the thing is people don't have affairs because they're horny people have affairs because they are craving something that they can't some for some reason they aren't able to feel like they're getting in that in their relationship with you and that's not because you're not offering it it's because they that person is is actually damaged themselves that person is too damaged to receive your love and so they then need to seek that validation elsewhere so again the problem isn't that you aren't being loving enough or that you're not being present in the relationship in most cases unless you're an emotionally withholding jerk or something which let's hope that you're not i'm going to assume good faith in you listener, that you aren't an emotionally withholding asshole. You actually are a good faith partner to your partner who's cheating on you or having an affair. But if that's the case, then the reason your partner's having that affair is not because you're not doing enough. It's because they actually can't feel your love. And they can't feel your love because they're experiencing their own shame so strongly that they then need to seek validation elsewhere because they're not able to feel validation from you at the moment. And so that's where this kind of betrayal tends to happen. But again, that's not pointing to any failing on your part. You don't need to take any responsibility for that, that happening at all. That's entirely on your partner, that they were too broken. They made a, mis- a series of mistakes. They chose to go down this dark path. At no point did you have any say in any of that. And you didn't sign up for that. You didn't deserve it. You didn't 
any of that. None of it. None of it's true. You don't deserve it. It doesn't. It's not what you you know what, what was coming to you because you weren't a good enough partner. That's not the case. So it's extremely important to realize that betrayal is never your fault, except for those rare cases where you're an emotionally abusive asshole. But that's you know we'll we'll say we'll save the abusive stuff for like always the edge cases. Anytime we say always or never and on the show, abuse is always like that weird exception. So you kind of say that all the time, but like it's you're, it's like you're being like emotionally withholding and like blackmailing your partner by like withholding you know, love and, and sex, then maybe the partner's having an affair because you're a cold, withholding, frigid bitch. But in other cases, assuming that's not the case, then the reason your partner's having an affair is because there's something wrong with them and not something wrong with you. You know, it's actually kind of funny because, you know, when we talk about toxic shame being really the source of, you know, betraying people in your life, the issue is, is that that shame causes you to have the the false idea that you will just any relationship that you get into, you're already automatically on an artificial timer. You are going to just destroy it. So you might as well just have fun and do whatever you want. So you don't feel compelled to build those those bridges, to build stability, to build a solid foundation. Because, well, I'm going to destroy it eventually, so why not just let it be fleeting? And so it causes that kind of mismatched level of investment where you have one person who is in it to win it. They're like, you know, well, this is a relationship. I really like you. And, you know, I'd like to see this maybe move to, you know, maybe we get married. Maybe we don't like actually get married, but we become fully committed to one another. We get a house together. We live together. We start a life together. It's that mismatched expectation. And out the gate, you're not going to say like, well, I'm going to ruin this, so don't get too invested, because that kind of pushes people away. That that doesn't really invite people into your life. So again, you're building that facade of being, oh, I'm perfectly happy and I'm good and you're going to love me and I love you. And when one thing goes wrong, when let's say you're on vacation and you discover that you have a connection with somebody else better, maybe... You know, you're on Twitter and you find that, oh, hey, I really enjoy talking to this person a lot more than I enjoy talking to my boyfriend or girlfriend. What's going to end up happening is you're going to seek that genuine connection. You're looking for that genuine validation that you are worthy of love. But you're never able to truly find it because you're wrapped in that toxic shame. So you have to be able to be self-aware to be self-analytical, to look inside and discover who your true self is. That's really where the act of betrayal comes from. Now, the difficult thing is when you are betrayed, when you are the victim of such actions, it becomes difficult to not kind of cloak yourself in that, to think, well, I did something wrong. Going back to what Firo said, you have to understand that you should never blame yourself for the actions that other people take to conceal their own shortcomings. You know, betrayal, again, it it always has that source of emotional distress. Now, here's kind of the bad news. If you want to avoid betrayal, you pretty much basically have to find someone who is not emotionally distressed. And, And that's never going to be the case, probably. Everybody on some level suffers from some level of emotional distress. Now, you might be 
you know, you might have moved past all of that in your life and you might be a fully realized individual, but everybody at some point suffered or has suffered from emotional distress. So you're never going to find somebody that doesn't have a little bit of baggage, a little bit of a life story. What you need to do, though, is find someone who is distressed or has suffered from emotional distress, but recognizes that fact and and works on it willingly within the relationship. You have to find somebody that is self-aware. And that can be kind of an issue for some people. Some individuals think, well, I'm a fixer-upper. You know, I'm going to get in a relationship with somebody that has emotional distress and I'm going to make them a better person. And if and when that doesn't happen, you're going to lose on validation because, well, I'm doing something wrong. They're not getting any better. A lot of the time, that's actually an odd form of projection where you still have your own issues that you're working through. And by working with other people to correct their own issues, you somehow feel validation and you feel your issues less. It's a form of avoidance. You're still living in that ambi- you know, a life of ambiguity. So you have to, if you're going to be in a relationship with somebody that has their own shortcomings, you have to also acknowledge yours because everybody has shortcomings. Well, that is a loud horn. Oh that's, my. that's a car alarm, actually. Huh. That's fun. It's right outside my window. There we go. What You know, what I'm basically saying is that everybody has shortcomings. Even when you work on shortcomings, there's always a sense of doubt within your mind that you have actually totally fully resolved them. So if you're dating somebody that is not self-aware, if you're with somebody that lacks that self-awareness, it's very dangerous because you're inviting betrayal essentially into your life. And, you know, it's kind of a bad thing to say that, you know, not everybody wants to feel that they're kind of unintentionally fucking themselves over. That's why it's important to have discussions at the start, you know, before you really get too invested in a relationship. What does a relationship mean to you? What are your goals? What are your expectations? Having these conversations and truly getting to know somebody outside of bed, perhaps, is going to make your relationships feel much more fulfilling. I find, you know, in my life that a lot of people tend to kind of rush into relationships and they wonder why they can never really find something that is truly sustained. A lot of that has to do with the idea that rushing into a relationship conceals that idea of shame. You want to be in a relationship to get validation. And once you have that validation, Uh, What's next? You don't know because you're a validation junkie. So you need to find the next fix. So you end up betraying your current relationship for a new one and then another one and then another one. So it's this pattern. It's this chain that never ends because you don't look inside. You have to look inside. And if you're dating somebody that has a lack of total self-awareness, you need to have that conversation with them that, hey, you know, there are things that I'm picking up on. And you need to use nonviolent communication skills for this, too. You need to be able to convey to them that there are parts of their life that they might want to work on in order to remain with you. Because you have integrity, you have emotional boundaries, and you can't allow for those to be trampled on. Absolutely. It's definitely important to maintain boundaries. And sometimes, you know, 
with betrayal and things of that nature, it's sometimes a case where your boundaries will have been transgressed, right? And you're faced with the choice of, do I enforce this boundary by ending, terminating this relationship, or do I forgive this violation and allow a clean slate to be set, right? And so I think that's a choice. And every time you're facing betrayal, that's a choice you always have to make. And I don't really feel like anyone can ever tell you which of those choices is the correct choice, right? No one can ever right. tell you, except in the cases of really flagrant abuse, where you're being like, you know, abused, where yes, you need to get out of that relationship. But no one, other than that, no one can ever really tell you when a relationship is toast, right? You can, you, you get to decide whether the relationship is worth working on or whether it's too much work and you'd rather start over with someone new, right? You get to make that choice. So, you know, and that's up to you. No one can tell you that you owe that person staying with them and no one can tell you that you owe it to yourself to leave. Whatever to you feels like the right choice. Again, that gets back to living your authentic self, right? Other people can tell you, you know, these two faggots with an advice podcast can tell you what to do, but ultimately you have to live your truth. You have to live your authentic truth. And if what's what you're what you're telling yourself is, hey, this person is still valuable to me. Yes, they screwed up and yes, we've got problems, but there's still a lot here to save then yeah, go for it. Make, make, try to make that work. Use your nonviolent communication skills. Use your active listening skills. Use all the skills that we've attempted to impart in you through the course of this podcast and try to work your way through that trauma and that uh, relationship can maybe improve and get better again. But that's going to require a lot of mutual, mutual vulnerability and compromise and a lot of discussion. And there's going to be a lot of processing. And both of you need to be willing to put in that work. You need to acknowledge that after betrayal, it takes a lot of work from both parties to get that relationship back on an even keel. And I will say, I have been betrayed many times in my relationships. And it's actually rare that I've chosen to end a relationship due to betrayal. I usually try to work through it. And the reason I do that is because usually if I'm with someone, the reason I'm with them to begin with is because I find them to be valuable enough to have them in my life. And a betrayal is rarely a big enough issue, even in egregious, horrible cases, for me to end a relationship due to it because I'm willing to do that, make to put in that hard work. But in certain cases, I've been with partners who, even though I was willing to put in the work, after they had betrayed me, they were not willing to work with me to rebuild the relationship. And that's actually often the case, too. If you're the one being betrayed, you can be willing to put in the work. But if the person doing the betraying is betrayed you to, to press a self-destruct button, some people are actually too shy to break up with you. And so instead of breaking up with you, they just cheat and do horrible things because they're trying to force your hand. They're trying to force you to break up with them, right? So you do, you do need to realize if you're with one of those types of people, that's when I think you do need to definitely pull the plug is when that person has actually already left you in all but name, right? You need to be aware of when you've been left in all but name. If the person has no genuine interest in staying with you, then you need to get the fuck out of that relationship, right? If the person has betrayed you and says, you know what, I betrayed you, I'm sorry, I shouldn't have done it, I wanna work with you, let's try to fix this. Then I think you know that that can be worth exploring. That, that again, that's own decision only you can make, right? Yeah. So, I mean, and I've had both situations happen where I've had a you know partner have an affair um, during the course of our relationship, and I stayed with them. And I've had other partners who um, were not as honest or forthcoming, and chose instead of you know being honest uh, to lie and it became very evident that they were not as invested in the relationship. And there are some times where you just don't want to, there, there are battles that are not worth undertaking. You know, there, there are some, sometimes you honestly have to just pull the plug and only you can make that call. And only you can really make that determination. 
So it's important to kind of know yourself and know your limits and know your boundaries and to have a sense of integrity because that's going to be your guiding. That's, that's your Polaris in this, this, you know, navigate in navigating this kind of emotional relationship, you know, trauma. Um, there's another kind of relationship trauma though. And this one isn't really often spoken about that much because I don't think the people encounter it or, recognize that they're encountering it. And it's just abandonment. And I'm not talking just about coming home one day to find that your boyfriend has taken his belongings and left the key and that's that. It's more the idea, uh, it's also the idea that there can be people that are just emotionally abandoning you and moving to that, you know, boyfriend or girlfriend and name only. So, Abandonment as as an action tends to be this it sources itself from a secondary emotion of shame. So there could be a sense of anger in the relationship. Um, your partner is angry, which leads to shame for feeling angry, which leads to catastrophizing the relationship, and it's their fault. So you could have somebody who is cheating on you, and they're angry at themselves for cheating on you. And they feel ashamed because they're angry, because they're cheating. They can't be honest with you. So the only option is to just ghost. They can't talk about their problems with you because of that shame, because they don't want to admit that they have a problem. And that's really what it boils down to. Shame inhibits honest talk. It inhibits the ability to recognize your own issues. And even if you do recognize them, you're not seeking to resolve them. You're seeking validation for having them. You're looking for avoidance techniques as opposed to resolution tactics. So because they're not able to talk about their problems, they withdraw. So emotionally, what can happen is gaslighting. They can put up an entire facade. Everything is perfect. Kind of, you know, almost Stepford Wives almost, where everything is perfect and there are no problems and we're all very happy our relationship is like North Korea. You have had enough food. You have enough love. Everything is sunshine forever. They withdraw from the relationship emotionally. They compartmentalize their reality, their actual existence, their experience within the relationship from the fantasy that they construct. And they begin living that fantasy. Now, this can somewhat arise from a perceived invalidation, uh, especially if somebody feels that they are not listened to or valued enough. So let's say that in your relationship, you love, you have a special meal that you love to cook. Um, let's say that it's beef stroganoff and your partner has never told you they fucking hate beef stroganoff, but they continue to eat it. They feel ashamed because they can't really confess that they dislike something because they've constructed this facade that everything is perfect. So they feel angry because they're feeling invalidated because you keep cooking them this meal that they hate once a month and they just dread it. They feel like you're not listening to them, even though they might, they have never said anything about it. So this perceived invalidation, this, this, Silent shame festers into anger, which festers into more shame. With fest, it's it's it, it feeds itself. It's an arabarus. It, it's a never-ending cycle, and the only way that they feel that they can break that cycle 
is to just kind of withdraw, to never speak their own mind. And eventually, that's going to cause them to just leave the relationship entirely. You come home, and they're gone. You call them, they're not there. You don't know where they are. They completely ghost on you. This is why compartmentalizing is dangerous. And when you talk about when you are kind of living in the closet, sometimes a little bit of compartmentality is good. Especially if you're trying to maintain the status quo, you're reliant on your parents, they would kick you out if you're gay, if you're trans, whatever it might be. So you kind of have to live a lie in order to make ends meet. But you understand what you're doing. You understand that this is temporary. You have a fully self-realized sense of self. In this case, it's none of that. It's everything is perfect. Everything is wonderful. I'm never going to address these problems because I'm the source of these problems. This is all me and I can't discuss it. You know, if, if he finds out that I feel this, he'll, he'll stop loving me. It's all shame. It's all based out of fear. And you can't allow that in your life. So the thing is, is that the only way that you can prevent this sort of thing from happening, emotional abandonment, or maybe even physical abandonment, and there's no guarantee that this will work. But really, the only way that I've, the only method that I've seen this not happen is fostering an environment of care and trust. You have to feel comfortable that your thoughts, feelings, and opinions can be heard and considered. This is where nonviolent communication skills come into play. Honey, every time, you know, I, under, I appreciate that you want to cook your special meal for me, but I'm not really a fan of beef stroganoff. It's not your cooking. It's just, I, I really just don't like the dish. And I would like maybe if we can find a new dish that we can make together, maybe. And that could become our dish. That's a way of kind of resolving that issue where everybody comes out a winner and you come out with a new strategy. Let, hey, let's do this together and we'll make something new. Right. I think essentially the way I view this as, you know, emotional abandonment in relationships to me is often the consequence of one partner not doing a very good job of managing their own defensiveness. Right. Because. If you're in a situation where someone discloses to you something or, a, you know, even if airs a criticism in a very nonviolent way and you respond to that criticism by becoming hyper defensive, what that's going to do is you're basically teaching your partner. Remember, every time you do something, every time you, you respond to your partner, you're essentially teaching them. Right. And that's actually, I think, a really important thing to remember is like it's not, you know, your boyfriend is a dog you're training, but at the end of the day, it kind of is, right? You're con every time you respond to something, you're conditioning your partner to expect a similar response to a similar stimulus in the future, right? Because that's how people work. That's how we learn. If you respond hyper-defensively when your partner expresses criticism or expresses some concern or some vulnerability or some need or whatever, and you get really defensive, the the what that results in is your partner learns that when I express my needs or when I criticize my partner, even if I do so mildly, my partner's going to flip out at me, not listen, and get super defensive, and, and we're going to have an argument, and it's going to ruin our it's going to ruin our night. So you're teaching your partner then to shut down, to turn inwards, to not be emotionally honest and engaged with you, to not disclose when there's something's making them unhappy, to instead become bitter and resentful, and to seek emotional connection and validation elsewhere, and not from you. 
because you aren't giving them validation. You are, and you're not saying, oh, I understand your need. I understand how you feel. You're not starting with understanding. You're starting with defensiveness. So when you respond with defensiveness, you're essentially set. And I'm not saying every time you do that, you're, that's going to like, oh, if your partner then abandons you, you deserved it. That's not what I'm saying <laughs> at all. But what I'm saying is don't open yourself up to it, right? So if you're concerned about the emotional abandonment, one of the ways to guard yourself against it is to be very understanding of your partner and make them feel super comfortable coming to you. Because when your partner, when you, when you make it as easy as possible for your partner to disclose uncomfortable things to you, the odds of your partner then choosing to keep secrets and choosing to turn inwards and choosing to emotionally abandon you are much lower. So it's not so much a matter of you deserve it if it happens to you. It's just a matter of saying if, you're, if, you, if emotional abandonment is something you really want to avoid, try to ensure that when you engage with your partner in a conflict-laden scenario, you use nonviolent communication to respond with understanding and empathy instead of defensiveness, right? 100%. You know. A lot of the time when you live in shame, you don't want to have those kinds of conversations and because you're afraid that they will reflect on you. And this is why abandonment can kind of feed into that shame, that idea that you're not able to be loved. It becomes a self-fulfilling prophecy and you kind of fortune tell every relationship before it, before it even happens. You can't do that to yourself. You, 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 you just can't. You have to allow for that level of vulnerability in your life. And that's why having integrity is so essential. That's why having a strong sense of self, having firm emotional boundaries that you disclose and you're able to discuss. And when they are infringed upon, you can have a conversation with your partner. And when their boundaries are infringed upon, you can have a discussion with them about that. It's all about having honest, open, and vulnerable conversation. And shame restricts that entirely. That's really what abandonment comes from. The thing is, is that you need to ensure that any kind of confrontation within your relationship is not traumatic. And the only way you can do that is by facing it head on, not blaming anybody, and just saying, okay, let's hear what happens. Let's hear what you have to say. This is what I have to say. Where do we go from here? It's all about compromise. It's not about making things fair or equal, rather. It's about having a fair understanding of each other and a fair path for the relationship to go on. It's not about you and your partner or your partners getting their way all the time. It's about everybody feeling that they are on the same footing. When that doesn't happen, that's when people start looking for the door. Ultimately, the currency of relationships is not under is not money or sex or anything. Those aren't the things that are make or break. Surprisingly, the thing that's make or break in a relationship and whether it's actually healthy is understanding. And that's why we emphasize empathy and so much on the show and why we devoted a whole episode to it. And frankly, the, our empathy episode is one of our favorites that we've ever done. So if you've missed that episode, please, please go back and listen to our empathy episode because it's so yeah. important and it helps so much with dealing with this shame issue. 
but that's really the, the, the key is empathy, empathy is really the key to making relationships go. Empathy leads to understanding and understanding is what enables you to then be emotionally in touch with each other and to be emotionally honest Emotionally, emotional honesty then builds authenticity and integrity and alleviates shame. Whoa! <laughs> it's, all, it's all coming together, Metrico. <laughs> yeah. Like, again, at the beginning of this year, I warned everybody that this is kind of like class, you know, if, if last year, season one, was the introduction, this is where we start pulling these core concepts together. Because... You can't really talk about the whole before you talk about the parts. And this is really an entire issue that many people face. And it's important to understand. Sorry, go ahead. What empathy actually is, how to build it, what integrity is, how to build it, nonviolent, how to build all of these structures and then talk about, here's why all of this is important. Let's put them all together in a way that makes sense and is fully relatable because Otherwise, we're just talking about these concepts. We're giving theory with no practicality. Right. Sorry, sorry jumping all over you there, Metrico. But I just was so eager to say that I think that the show is, is really important in that when we talk, this show in particular is really important because I think using the lens of shame to view all these relationship, like relationship ending events, right? We talk about in previous shows like abandonment and uh, affairs and betrayal and betrayal are, are such huge issues. And really they're all driven by shame. And so understanding that, understanding what really drives those behaviors, I think does allow you to, I think just, you know, take it's preventative medicine, right? So you just, you want to take preventative steps now to make your relationships as healthy as possible so that you can avoid some of these really traumatic relationship ending events down the road, potentially. Yeah. So it's just, it's a way of just doing some preventative maintenance. I think that's important to keep that in mind. It's a good way of viewing this as a, as a way of, you know, learning how you, how you work, learning what it is that you need and learning how, you know, shame really motivates people can really teach you what it is you need to do to keep people from feeling like you don't understand them and don't really value them for who they truly are, because that's what people really want in a relationship is to feel valued and understood for who they truly are. Again, everybody needs validation. Shame inhibits validation. And without validation in a relationship, the relationship will fail. That's, that's a, there's, there's no, there's no way around it. The relationship will fail. So all of this has been essentially doom and gloom. And we've kind of hinted at the light at the end of the tunnel, and we are finally here. Now, the Velvet Rage goes through an entire section, which I would recommend that everybody read. Again, the book itself is written towards gay men. However, I do think that these lessons and these ideas and these practices will be valuable for plenty of people in their lives. So here are just some of the more general ideas that are presented. And these are things that have worked, you know, for me in my own life when I had to overcome all of this bullshit in my life. The first thing that you really want to do is find interests in your life that inspire you, that are uniquely your own. And this has to happen independent of a relationship. If you're in a relationship now, it's good to have mutual interests. But finding something that's your own, and if there is overlap, that's great. 
But you don't want to, of course, become interested in something artificially because you know it makes your partner happy. And you never want to have anybody tell you that it's stupid and believe them. If it's something that people find trivial, maybe you find inspiration and you enjoy following the, I don't know, League of Legends competitions. And that's something that you enjoy. And you enjoy being invested in and learning what who the biggest teams are and what they're doing and all of that. That's something that's uniquely you. And you can share that with other people, but it's something that you can also enjoy on your own. Maybe it's you enjoy Shakespearean acting. Maybe you love underwater basket weaving. Whatever inspires you and interests you that you can do on your own is going to be something that helps you build a sense of self. There's a lot of talk of people who get into jobs that they really hate. It's not a job that they love doing. It's just to make ends meet. And the thing with that is sometimes you have to do what you must in order to survive. Sometimes you have to wait tables or work at fast food. Sometimes you have to put on a coat and a tie and work in a you know, professional business setting as a salary man or woman. But that's not your real passion. And if you can identify what your passion is, you can then take steps in order to achieve it. You might work at you know, some kind of an investment firm, and everybody thinks that your true passion, which is owning and operating a farm, is idiotic because, well, ah, that's not a guarantee. The markets are more stable than farming. Never let somebody tell you it's stupid. There should never be anything that gets in the way of you achieving validation in your life, and self-validation is the strongest thing of them all. Take steps to achieve what makes you feel happy and fulfilled. But again, these have to be things that don't rely on other people being there for you to enjoy it. Happiness really is the ability to be by yourself and still find enjoyment in life. And happiness also is, you know, coming back and sharing those experiences with other people. And the best people in life are the people who, while they might tease you about maybe being a geek for enjoying going to BlizzCon, they're excited that you had a good time. And, oh man, here comes the geek talking about his LARPing experiences, gosh. But they listen to you, and they're excited that you're having a good time. And while they may not share that interest, and they may find it to not work in their life, they still value you as a friend, and that validation goes far. It's also important to understand, and we're going to talk a little bit about emotion for a second. So, emotions like sadness, anger, and really shame are really long-setting. So, the negative emotions that you experience in life, can tend, they tend to be very strong, and they're always dialed to 11. And it's difficult to move past them. You kind of hold on to them and they hold on to you. When it comes to positive emotions like joy or happiness, not only are they a little bit more difficult to come across, they're also difficult to keep tangible. Joy kind of is a momentary moment and then it's gone and you just have a memory of it. So what ends up happening 
is if you don't find those positive emotions over a period of time, you just have a long slump with momentary spikes. And it's important that you recognize that negative emotions can tend to be long-setting because over time, the human mind is programmed to really identify trends, to, to correlate information. And when you just see yourself in a long slump, when you see yourself as being sad and living a life of shame, your mind will only kind of identify those moments and it will latch onto those moments and it will ignore the other more positive moments. Now, of course, you may be, you know, not, you might have some kind of like an atypical neurological condition going on. You might have clinical depression. You might have some kind of an issue that also requires additional help and medication. But something that I found that works for me, and and this is me speaking as somebody who is um, neurologically atypical, um, is I keep a journal. And, and, and I haven't been doing it lately because I haven't really felt the need. But especially when I was working past a lot of anger and resentment, I kept a journal of my emotions on a daily basis. And anytime that I felt happy or joyful, I would write around what time that happened and what inspired me to have that sensation. And at the beginning, those moments were really few and far in between. Some days there would just be like April 14th and just an X mark. Nothing happened. April 15th. Okay. One moment. 16th, one moment. Over time, the more that you identify the positive, the more likely you are to recognize it. And you'll notice it more and more and more. And that helps you confirm that your life is actually full of joy and it has meaning and you can be happy. The thing, though, is that you have to have that vulnerability, though. You have to allow joy which, again, is fleeting and intangible. You can't hog it. It's not, it's not a body pillow. There, there's no way that you can take it to bed with you. Joy comes and it goes. If you're vulnerable to that and you allow for that to exist in your life, you'll find it more and more and more and more. Now, I'm not saying that you ignore the negative. You have to face everything head on. But there is a tendency among people, especially within the LGBTQ community, to ignore happiness and fixate entirely on shameful experience. And this is a way to combat that. And what you can do when you discover, hey, I really enjoyed when I went running and I felt really good, you can recreate that. You could say, well, if running makes me feel happy, I'm going to try that. And if it continues to make me feel happy, then I'm going to continue to do that. I can recreate this. I can, I can allow this in my life. It is something that's not only an interest of mine that I can enjoy on my own, but it is an experience that causes me to feel good. You can create positivity in your life. You don't wait around for it to happen to you. This is what taking control of your existence is like. And sometimes you need to journal it. Sometimes you need to blog it. Sometimes you need to be held accountable for it, whether that's through friends, through a therapist, through counseling, whatever it might be for you. 
but you can create love and joy and positivity in your life. Now, it's important to say, though, that love, you know, when we talk about meta emotions, you know, the, the, the big emotion is happiness. And then meta emotions are things that feed into the feeling of happiness. So joy and also love. And these are separate, of course. Love you experience separately from joy. Love is kind of a difficult meta emotion because you experience it kind of secondarily. And it can be masked by other emotions. It's difficult to feel love when you're angry. It's difficult to feel love when you're in a moment of like complete bliss. But it's near impossible to feel love when you are living a life of shame. You can't ascertain it. It is, you know, you might be able to see it in the distance, but the closer you get to it, the further it gets away. See, the unfortunate thing about uh, this motion issue is that when you feel shame, it really gets back to that what everyone always says about love, right? And it's one of those annoying truisms that is true, but it's kind of just annoying to hear, which is that it's very difficult to feel love from other people if you don't love yourself. This is, I mean, it's true, but it this is the explanation for why that is true, right? Because it's, it's based in shame. The reason why you can't feel love from other people if you don't love yourself is because when you don't love yourself when you feel a profound sense of shame. Those two things are a way of saying the same thing. When you feel shame, that's a lack of self-love. It's feeling un- a profound sense of unlovability in yourself. That is what shame is. Right. It's, it's when you don't love yourself, right? So that's the problem. When you don't love yourself, that then makes everything you experience that is joyful feel like you didn't earn it because you don't feel like you, the person who maybe maybe feel that joy was really knew the, the true you. If they knew the true you, they wouldn't have made you feel that way because the true you isn't lovable, right? So you don't get any validation from that. And that then makes that joy turn to ash, right? So it's very difficult then to feel love because love is truly the experience of joy with another, uh, validating, the experience of validating joy with another individual over a period of time essentially produces the emotion love. That's what love is. It's kind of not very romantic to define love because a lot, a lot of people resist defining love in any way because they think, you know, hey, I can't, I can't like uh, talk about what love is because otherwise I'm ruining it. But no, love is just experiencing joy with somebody over and over again over a period of time and then eventually fall in love with that person. That's how it works. So, yeah. but if you don't, if you get no validation from that, then you don't, and that's why you can end up in loveless relationships, even if everything's going great and it looks great from the outside. Because, yeah, everything's looking great from the outside, but you're not experiencing any validation from it because you don't feel like you've been your authentic self. And that's where that midlife crisis situation comes back in, right? You know, people like to say that love is one of the few emotions that you can actually do. Like, you can't happy, you can't angry, but you can love. Love as Massive Effect says is a doing word. It is a doing emotion. And it's something that you have to seek out, and you can't allow anything to cover it up. So the thing is, is that when it comes to finding love in a relationship, obviously you have to find love within yourself, and you have to love yourself, and you have to find the qualities in yourself that make you feel happy when you think about them. It's difficult to, when you focus on oh, I'm too fat. Oh, I have a lisp. Oh, I, you know, I sound really gay when I talk. 
oh, you know, I have bad skin or my hair is weird. I'm balding. I have hair on my back. It's hard to find love in yourself when you focus on these qualities, even more so when you find or believe that you are intrinsically broken when you yourself are beyond being loved by other people. So why the hell would you love yourself? When you're able to identify the qualities that bring that, that make you happy, you know, I love myself. Um, I mean, and, and I won't even talk theoretically. I'll talk about myself for a second because why not? I know myself better than anybody else. I, I, I love myself because I, I don't, I'm kind of good at not quitting. I'm good at keeping my head up even when it's difficult. And I love myself because I haven't given up. And the things that I bring to the table are, are pretty nice too. You know, I love that I'm able to be by myself and find enjoyment in the small things. And I love that I enjoy being outside at night more than that day. I love all of these minor, small qualities about myself that bring me happiness, that bring me a sense of, I, I don't want to say like honest about myself, but, but they make me feel good about being who I am. And again, it's just small qualities that you bring to your own personal, you know, tiny little table. And it's important that you identify these things. And, you know, when you identify things about yourself that you don't like, it's it's incredibly easy to fixate on that. What's important, and I found in my life, is if you identify a quality in your life that you dislike... You know, find a way to either accept it as intrinsic and, well, that's just how I am. You know, maybe you, you know, it's, I have a lot of scars on my body because I've had a lot of surgery. Um, I've been injured a lot. Um, I've been attacked. So I have a lot of scars. Um, I used to kind of really dislike them because some of them are a little bit visible and, like, it did cause some slight physical impairment. Uh, my left hand, for example, I have very bad sensation in because it was cut open and a lot of my uh, nerves were severed and they were unable to be repaired. So I don't have that great sensation in this hand. And there's a scar that if you look on my palm, you'll see it. And it's, you know, I used to be really self-conscious about it. But now I'm just like, it doesn't even bother me. I don't fixate on that. And when people ask me about the, you know, oh, hey, I see you have a scar here. What's that for? I'm able to kind of talk about it. I've spoken about kind of using a, a little bit of um, self-degradation as a coat of armor. And some people have asked me because they see my Twitter, they hear me on here. If I genuinely actually like myself because I make fun of myself a lot. And the truth is, is that I do. Because the things that I make fun of myself are things that either I can change, you know, oh my god, I'm too fat. Well, well, obviously, I can probably solve that by eating healthier and going to the gym, which I have started doing, everybody. You're welcome. Um, or I make fun of myself for things that I can't change. Uh, sometimes I whistle my S's. Sometimes I get a little bit flustered. I get a little bit shy. These are things about myself that are intrinsic, that are parts of who I am. And I wouldn't change that for the world. I have freckles on my body, and some people view them as blemishes, but you can also view them as beauty marks. 
So it's just important to kind of realize that there are qualities about yourself that you have to accept, and you either accept them as being unfixable, and you're just like, hey, that's just part of it, or you accept them as being, hey, this is how I am now, but this is not maybe how I want to be, and here's what I can do in order to resolve that. When it comes to finding love in your partner and accepting their love, sometimes you have to kind of find love in the qualities that your partner brings to your life, things that make you smile, things that if you're just kind of sitting in bed alone and you think about, it makes you smile or maybe makes you laugh. It could be difficult to, especially if you're kind of still finding yourself, but it helps. You should never give your love away freely. You should never just say, well, I love you. You should never just say that for the sake of saying it. You need to know what love means to you. And you need to know whether or not the people in your life make you experience what love is to you. And this can be a difficult scenario because if you get into a relationship when you are living a life of deceit and shame, if you go on a path of self-exploration and self-discovery, you might find that the people in your life are not the people that you actually love. And that can be a very difficult thing because you might be faced with the decision as to whether or not it's healthy for you to keep staying around them. And you might have to start cleaning house a little bit to get rid of people that add more to your toxic shame than they do to your sense of self-love. It's a very difficult situation to be in, but it's one that you kind of have to go through, and everybody does. So just be mindful of that. And honestly, all of this builds up to integrity, which we've spoken about a lot. You need to have integrity. Integrity is so essential. We have an entire episode on it, so I'm not going to spend really that much time. But to summarize, ask yourself what matters most in your life. Ask yourself where you are now, where you want to be, and what kind of person you need to become in order to get there. That's what integrity is. Once you're able to identify that, you're able to then set emotional boundaries. You're able to set, okay, well, if I want to become this, and this is what it matters most to me, if I want to be an individual that loves myself, that has somebody in their life, that is in a healthy relationship, what I need to do now is to stop going out every night, getting drunk, doing drugs, having anonymous sex. From that point, you can then transition into becoming a person that you feel most like comfortable with that you feel most validated as and i'll be honest sometimes you get it wrong sometimes you realize that what you think you want to become is not who you actually want to be and that's fine too make mistakes but take control the thing about shame is that life happens passively to you seize the rain seize the motherfucking day carpa fucking diem life is meant to be lived actively. Shame, anger, disgust, all of these are passive emotions. Love is an active emotion. It takes effort. It takes time. It takes integrity. It takes care. It takes awareness. It takes clarity. All of these things require for you to dig your head out of the sand 
and to look to the future. Shame forces you to look at the past. Shame forces you to look anywhere but inside. It is essential that you live life with integrity. It is essential that you recognize that you will never always get it right. And it is important that you understand that every relationship, including the relationship that you have with yourself, will require repair from time to time. As long as you are okay with all of this, then you can start living life as you and not as a facade that is covering up shame. Now, there are some things that the book then goes on to discuss. Uh, The Velvet Rage continues to discuss little checklists, little examples, things to remember. I'm not going to go through them all. If you want to read a small summary of them, go to our show notes. And these are things that are like, focus on your needs and your partner's needs and make them a priority and accept reality as being reality. Things that we discussed in both our cognitive behavioral therapy episode and our episode that discuss dialectical behavioral therapy. These are things that will allow for you to react appropriately to negative situations in your life and not revert to living a facade. I would recommend that you read through them. Again, I'm not going to go through them because we've kind of gone over them before. At the end of the day, all of this combined. There's been some feedback. There are some people who feel fortunate that they have not ever been in a situation or been put in a position where they've had to conceal parts of who they are. And that's good. There have been some people that have questioned why we've spent so long on this topic, why we're going over it when it doesn't apply to everybody. The fact of the matter is, is that shame as a concept, it it does affect everybody because it is highly unlikely that you as an individual that has lived life without any shame or having to build a facade in any way, shape or form will somehow find another person that grew up under the same circumstances and live a life together. It is highly unlikely. Shame affects everybody. Shame affects the way that the people that we elect to government rule. It affects the way that the people in our life react to negative situations. It impacts the way that your parents raised you. It affects everything. And it's important to have an understanding of what shame is and how it dictates living life and how you have to overcome it. Because if you don't understand what shame is, what ends up happening is if your partner begins to transition through these steps, you get left behind. So find relevance in that. This is an episode about, you know, this has been a series. Hello, NYPD. Um, (laughs) It's springtime in New York City, everybody. So everybody's going kind of crazy. Um, We've had sirens here, too, so I guess it's just all the nice big cities are having fun today. What can you do, right? (laughs) Yep. But ultimately, at the end of the day, you have to recognize these qualities. Because if your partner comes looking for validation, hi, I've recognized that these are issues that I face, that I struggle with, and I need your help with them. If you blow them off saying, well, I didn't go through them, so it's not that big of a deal chances are that you are going to be a source of their shame as well. Never let that happen. Support people 
that are transitioning in their lives. Support people that are trying to move past it. Find value in their lives and give them genuine validation. Sometimes you as an individual that is fully realized have to be a torchbearer and you have to hold a light to the darkness that people do not want to see for themselves. You can't do that unless you recognize what it is in itself. Shame sucks, everybody. We've tried to make this topic kind of as playful as possible in episode titles and, you know, having small jokes here and there, but shame sucks. Shame is the source of almost every kind of toxic behavior. And it is important that you recognize that and move past it. A lot of people ask the question, how can, how come they never can find a sustainable relationship? Why is it that they are always friend zoned? Why is it? Shame is the source of that entire idea. Shame is the source of really negative thinking about yourself when it comes to relationships with life, with love, with everything. And until you address shame, you're stuck. You're static. Become a dynamic person in your life. Become an active person in your life and take control. And that's... I will second that. Yes, absolutely. That, that's really the yeah. key. Is when you eliminate shame, everything else then... That's kind of when your life starts over in a lot of ways, right? It's kind of a rebirth you experience yeah. once you get past shame. Metrico and I are both fortunate enough to kind of be living in our post-shame, joyful little existences. And honestly, it's a long road to get there. And it takes a lot of self-work and a lot of a lot of hard life lessons oftentimes. But, you know, it's worth it. It's worth it to do that journey. Because once you get to the other side and get to be in living in a post-shame world where you truly embrace yourself and live authentically... It's a lot of, it feels, it's extremely liberating and it, it, it feels good. It, it's really where contentment comes from. And I, I never really felt contentment until I got into that post shame world. So that's really what you need to keep your sights set on. If you want to live happily ever after, because happily ever after is possible. It's just not given to you the way society would think that, uh, you should have it. So it comes from within and that's, that's really the ultimate lesson, right? It's the only way that you can find genuine, natural freedom to live. Make happily ever after happen for you. <laughs> <laughs> we're gonna we're gonna kind of end our shame series there. I think it's. I hope that everybody kind of appreciates it and you know has been able to identify something from it, even if it's not directly applicable in your life. Maybe you're able to identify things in the lives of your friends and loved ones and be there as a source of support and validation as they make that transition to a post-shame existence. We're going to move on to our question for the week. We have a questioner that asks about cheating in a long-distance relationship and potential atypical neurological symptoms. So the questioner asks, uh, so me and my ex were in an LDR long distance relationship for a bit over a year and a half and everything was going well. Basically, without giving too much away, I found out he was cheating on me and had been for over four months. His reasoning behind it was multiple personality disorder and he claims he didn't know he was cheating on me that entire time and the other one didn't know either. He was the one that contacted me once he found out. So 
we're just going to kind of leave the rest of the question out. We're just going to address this for a second. It's very difficult to... In relationships, you should always have good faith. But when it comes to long-distance relationships, unfortunately, there is always the tragedy of being catfished. I will say that when I read the question and I got to that point, I just kind of went, what? Because when it comes to things like disassociative personality disorders, uh, multiple personality disorders, schizo, you know, schizoid type issues, they tend to be kind of used by people who are catfishing you and are cheating scumbags. I don't know how else to say it. And it can be very difficult because I don't want to come off as being like, well, everybody that says that they have, you know, some kind of a neurologically, you know, atypical disorder is a lying, cheating scumbag. But I will say that this raises a lot of red flags in my mind. And I would be hesitant to believe them as being uh, honest. Right. The odds of this person having no inkling of the fact that they were cheating at any point and like... This, that's not true. <laughs> Perhaps, like, there might be a, a gem of truth to this, that maybe, you know, when they are in certain moods, they are more open to the idea of non-monogamy, let's say, than when they are in other moods. Uh, so that's a possibility, that maybe this person does have, you know, can be put into a mindset where they are more open to this type of behavior, and that then may be enabled an affair to begin. I would buy that. I do not buy that conveniently this person only was ever exposed to the person they were cheating on you with when they happened to be in that altered state of mind and that this person never approached them or never conversed with them when they were in state of mind, when they were aware of the fact that they were headed loyalty to you, right? That is not true. <laughs> There's no way. So you're, the person's lying to you and they're, they're basically trying to save face by claiming that basically, again, this person you're talking to, to borrow from the show, is unwilling to face their own shame. And because they can't take responsibility for doing something wrong, they need to explain it away. And they explain it away through a convenient rationalization, which is the uh, mental disorder that they're mentioning to you, to the, the kind of using as a shield, right? And I hate when people do this because it really casts doubt and aspersion on people who actually do suffer from these disorders and maybe this person also suffers from it but when you use it as a, sh a shield like that it basically delegitimizes the condition and it's really unfortunate to see that happen because multiple personality disorder and you know schizotypal personality disorders these are all real things and they do affect people but they don't it's not this type of you know movie like this person i think saw one too many movies about how you know this type of thing can play out and isn't really being very realistic with you so you know, I there, there might be, a, like I said, a grain of truth to it, but I highly doubt that there was no, this person never had any inkling that they were cheating on you during the time that they were cheating on you. I don't believe that. I don't think you should either. So, and you know, even if you forgive this person, you're well, you know, you can choose to forgive them. But when you forgive somebody, that doesn't mean you're obligated to accept them back into your life in any meaningful way. You can say, you know what, I understand that your disorder, you know, contributed to you doing this and I understand, but I still want nothing to do with you. And that's fine. You know, when you, when you forgive somebody, that doesn't mean you have to give them the seat at the dinner table. It just means that you have, you know, you're, you're not harboring ill feelings, right? You're not continuing to harbor resentment towards that person. So you can choose not to resent your ex, but I don't really think you have much business getting back together with them either. Is that kind of your take on it as well? Yeah, it's, I will say one thing, and this is just because um, I had somebody who tried to do this 
same thing to me once before in the past. There's been no clear clinical empirical proof of this actual condition being able to be diagnosed. There's been no clear clinical proof of a total cognitive break. It tends to be more on the emotional side, like Vera was saying, where there are conditions and maybe perhaps even triggers that will allow for heightened emotional states. But there has been really no kind of, um, shall we say, empirically supported definition of disassociation. So because of that, it's very difficult to define. And I've very rarely ever seen any kind of clinical, like, neurologist, psychologist, psychiatrist been able to kind of diagnose this. I'm just kind of throwing that out there. There are cases where there are, you know, you might suffer from weird moments of amnesia where you black out and you do things that are against your character. But again, it's very rarely that sort of thing. There's a lot of comorbidity as well. There's malingering involved. Like there's a lot of things that go into disassociative identity disorder, which is the current name for multiple personality disorder. I just want to say from like a top down perspective, this is very rarely diagnosed and there's a lot of debate as to what this actually is. So I would be very hesitant just off the bat to believe that. So it kind of just a couple more points to make on that front before we finish yeah, off here. Sorry. I, I want to say too, that uh, getting back to what Medica said, that's completely valid. Another thing is when people are dissociate or some, you know, even have a psychotic break, those types of events, yes, you can have different, you can very different behavior from someone who's in that state than what they would behave normally. Right. So someone might become violent. Someone might become extremely sexually promiscuous. Someone might do a lot of things. So yes, a partner who had this disorder might cheat on you while they are dissociating. That's quite possible. But uh, the fact that they would you know, only ever meet up with this other person while they are dissociating and then somehow magically this person never contacts them except when they're dissociating, it's like, eh. that's not how relationships work, right? This person is likely going to be texting this your partner, hey, how's your day, when they are with you and you're out and about, you've been living your normal life and it's like your par- their partner is not going to forget who that person is while they're out with you, you know, like yeah. clearly they, these things are going to cross over, right? So even if the initial time they spent with this person was born of dissociation, the affair was born out of betrayal, right? That's the, that's, I think the key point. Second point I'll make, sometimes people will get into it, sex can be a very much a headspace thing sometimes. So I'll take the example, going back to our uh, episode with pup powder, where we talked about pup and handler play. And we mentioned that sometimes people are very different sexually when they are in pup headspace than when they are not. So perhaps when this, you know when someone's in that headspace, they might you know be very sexual with any particular individual, but when they are in their normal headspace, they are not, and they are only sexual with their partner, their husband, or someone, or, you know, their, or wife, or whatever it might be. So in that situation, it's certainly possible that you can have kind of uh, siloed relationships, but you're still aware of the fact that those things exist. It's not like you have no awareness of that, right? So in no, in no, in no case is it that, you know, I have, you know, there's no crossing over where I, have, I would have no way of knowing that I was having an affair during a time when I wasn't in that headspace, right? That's just not, no. So 
we're just gonna both gonna put this on the bullshit meter and, and say this, yeah. this boat don't float on that on that particular issue. Now I do want to clarify that you know there are people that do suffer from disassociation, and again, that is a very controversial sort of diagnosis based on because people. Like they aren't sure what causes it. Is it trauma? Is it a trigger? Is it stress? What exactly happens? It seems to be some combination of the three of those, right? So the thing is, is that, and I just wanted to clarify because I realized I might've misspoken. This does happen, but again, it is not common and it requires a, like people often use the idea that I have an alter self and I can't control it as a means by which they're able to get away with things. You're, you ask, you know, the, the questioner asked, was I all right in breaking up with them and keeping them as a friend just in case they're right and maybe we can get back together? It's cool to have them as a friend, but because this reeks so much of bullshit, I would caution you against getting back into a relationship with them. Again, they could be com- being completely honest, and in that case, I apologize, but... I see this kind of argument used to, again, construct a facade that validates their behavior as opposed to corrects the behavior. So just be mindful of that. This the, A lot of red flags. I'm very hesitant to believe what this person is saying to you, and I apologize for that. So hopefully you're able to kind of navigate your way through this, though. Um, I would recommend friends is as far as you should go from this point on. So next week we have a really fun topic. Um, I'm actually looking forward to next week. Um, we're having, we've invited a special guest onto the show. Um, Deborah. So who interviewed us for playboy um, has agreed to come on our show and I'm really excited to have her on and we'll be talking about sexuality and gender and neuroscience. And it's going to be very much so a topic for Vero and not me because I am a different kind of scientist and don't really understand how the human body works. Um, but I'm really excited for it because uh, Deborah has written a lot of articles for various publications on how sexuality and gender are quantified within the brain and how it just, it's going to be a fun topic. So I'm really looking forward to it. Um, it's going to be kind of like, I almost want to say like an off topic show almost, but it's going to be more about you and why you are the way that you are. So if you have questions about sexuality and gender and how the brain works, get them in. Now we're going to be recording this soon. We're just putting in the fine, you know, finishing details with Deborah. So looking really forward to it. If you have, again, if you have questions, if you have a question about shame or anything, or you want to tell me that I'm full of shit and I should be more permissive of people that claim to have mental, you know, uh, neurotypical, atypical sorts of things going on, mental disorders, conditions, hit us our, hit our contact page on our website, feralattraction.com. You can tell me that anonymously. You can continue to send me death threats, even though I think it's funny after what happened at RMFC. Um, that's really all that, it, you know. Call us, leave a voicemail, do all sorts of fun things, get in touch with us. And, you know, maybe consider, you know, leaving us a rating and review on iTunes or Google Play or wherever you are listening to this. That helps our visibility and it helps other people listen to the content of the show. And if you find it to be valuable, that's a great way to do it. You can also consider becoming a patron of ours. 
um, at patreon.com. And we have different tiers, one of which does allow for shoutouts at the end of the show. Snares is one such patron. Uh, he has his own Patreon for Meteor Showers. And also, if you're looking to get commissions, visit his For Affinity page. Uh, the username is Furious. F-U-R-I-O-U-S. Zarpolis is another patron who is an author who recently published a short novel with the Thurston Hal Press titled The Pride of the Parahumans. You should check it out on Amazon if you're so inclined, and check out his own website and Patreon as well, patreon.com slash Zarpolis. If you're looking for a new friend on Twitter, consider Myron the Fluffy at Myron the Fluffy. Daily postings of Red Dog Ramblings, Red Panda Dog Ramblings, rather, and pictures, all sorts of good fun. It's nice to have new friends. Vero, uh, so you did FWA. Uh, you had a panel there. I did. I suppose we kind of forgot to mention how that went. I but totally yeah, well, we, we, yeah, we totally both spaced on that. It's totally fine. I'm still out of it from coming back from travel. So, yeah, it went really well. We had about 45 attendees. It was a uh, really great panel on Sunday. Uh, we only had an hour slot, so we did kind of an abbreviated version of the panel where I kind of emphasized talking about mindfulness and communication as the two pillars of successful uh, non-monogamous relationships. And so I did a little presentation on that. And then we had about 40 minutes for questions. And the questions were great. We had a lot of audience engagement. It went super well. And gave a ton of business cards. So I think uh, I think it was definitely a good time. Hopefully, uh, panels continue to go well in the future. I know you're running a version yes. of our panel coming up shortly at I believe, furthermore, and I have just received word that I will be running our panel at, uh, for, uh, what is it, Furlandia? That's what yes. Portland Con is called? Yes. So I'll be running our con at Furland- uh, our panel at Furlandia. You'll be running it at Furthermore. It'll be good. Yes, and I have more information about Furthermore, which is in roughly two weeks. The panel will be in the 18-plus after dark you know, block on Saturday evening, and it is Saturday from 10 p.m. until midnight. Um, and you can find more information in our show notes, but it will be happening and I'm really excited for it. It will be in the Monticello room panel three. Um, I believe it will be just me running this one, which will be a first, um, I've only ever run it with you. So it'll be our own unique, fun little version. So if you're going to be at furthermore and you want to see feral attraction live with me, um, we're going to have a good time. It will be an hour, roughly, presentation, and then a full-on Q&A afterward. You know, stop by if you happen to be there and say hello. We're going to wrap up the episode there. Um, again, thank you very much for joining us for this series on shame. Next week, it's going to be Sexuality and Gender with Deborah So. Until then, I'm Metrico. And I'm Vera the Science Collie. Be well.